Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Sexploit Popushka. And we have a very special guest, as usual, Kenny. I don't want to say much. I just want you to, to introduce yourself because so, so Kenny, welcome to the podcast. Okay. Thank you so much, Papa. Uh, my name is Kenny Mwicha and I am a lawyer. I am a public policy specialist and I usually focus or mostly focus on human rights issues, issues to do with discrimination, um, LGBTQ rights, the rights of minorities in general. Yeah. And I'm so happy to be on this podcast. Oh, thank you. Please tell me how you learned about the podcast. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't remember what the story was. I think I was like, uh, I was looking for like, hmm, I was looking for like podcasts that dealt with like the queer community in Kenya. Because I, I have a friend of mine who wanted us to to start a podcast, so I was kind of just looking, and then I was like, uh, what are the podcasts that are in my kind of like country? Because I use Apple Podcasts, and then. I saw this and I decided to just start listening and I've actually only started listening uh, this year and it was, um, I've had a great time. So um, I'm happy to be on the podcast. Oh, thank you very much. So Kenny, today we are going to talk about the politics of sex, which is ideally a very broad topic in itself. So please help our listeners understand when you talk about the politics of sex, what exactly do we mean by the politics of sex? What are we going to discuss when you're talking about the politics of sex? Oh, you know, like I could, um, I could be very highbrow and I could talk about politics as ethics, you know, Um, but I think like what we mean when we say politics the politics of sex, I think it's the question of, you know, kind of like what are the understanding, what is the understanding of sex among the public? So like, you know, like the public at large involves like individuals making, um, everyone in politics, you're always making like an individual choice, but then at the end of kind of like really connected um, to society at large. So, when I talk about the politics of sex, is for example, what values collectively in the communities that we are part of, in the country that we are part of, in the societies that we are part of, to do with sex, and what involves or what like what has kind of like affected our thinking when we when it comes to sex. When we think about sex politically or as as a society or a community, what do we mean? how would we describe it what are the characteristics of sex so that's the politics for sex like in very broad terms when mm. if you if you were to ask me what i think so i want us to go deeply just as you've explained a lot of factors come into our perception and internalization of sex and the society shapes a lot about what we perceive sex to be so let's start with the society how do you think the society our society as a kenyan culture kenyan society has influenced our own perception of sex and sexuality yeah you're definitely right that like every kind of like society different societies will have like different ideas of sex and i think um, the thing about sex is like over time like culture because of culture because of like demographics because of a lot of factors like our views on change i mean our views on sex as a society or as a community change but like in kenya like if i was asked you know like you know culturally or politically what is our collective idea of sex like you know it's everything from you know sex should be between a man and a woman it should be between two people it should be between people who are married or in a kind of like recognized relationship 
um, it should be geared towards procreation and it should be as part of a lifelong committed relationship. So when that's when when you think about like the broad general idea of what sex is or like what what is the most because sometimes like societies will also kind of like place value on different kinds of like sexual relationships, but the most idealized one that is treated um, as the ideal is the one that I've just described, that it's monogamous, it's lifelong, it's heterosexual, um, and it's within kind of like this, you know, like idea of within a marriage or other forms of recognized, you know, relationships. Okay, yeah. very beautiful point. Now, I was having an argument with some friends of mine yesterday, and we were talking about polygamy versus polyandry. And um, it, it just don't, one of them mentioned, one of my friends mentioned that um, ideally, um, men are the keepers of the relationship and women are the keepers of sex. So ideally, according to them, in a heterosexual perspective, uh, the woman is the one who controls the sex. When do we have it? How do we have it? Why do we have it? And all this. But what was striking for me when you talked about monogamy is, and even polygamy for some cultures, especially our Kenyan society culture, is there's so much that the man gets away with when it comes to sex as opposed to the woman. When you talk about the societal expectation of the man and sex and the societal expectation of the woman and sex, they are totally different. A man can get away with um, fucking around aimlessly yeah. and can even be open about how many people they've fucked. But ideally, if a woman is open about how many people they've fucked, they're they are a whole, they're given labels. So my first question is, why, as a society, do we have different sexual expectations between the man and the woman? Oh, that's, a, that's actually a very good question, and it informs so much of how we also kind of, like, view women in general. I think that um, at the end of the day, because we live in a patriarchal society that there's this expectation that like you know a man should try and kind of like monopolize as many sexual partners as possible so that's how you end up with things like polygamy where like you know kind of like a man is kind of like having uh, or having sexual liaisons with as many women as possible because it's also i guess something evolutionary like you're trying to kind of like pass your genes through as many people as possible i think that maybe there's an argument there. The other is just kind of like uh, we live in an extremely patriarchal society. At the end of the day, like you'll find that men are given more leverage in kind of like breaking sexual mores than women are. So for example, I mean, I don't think that there's any kind of like scientific study that can say that men are kind of like more sexually active than women. But you will find that like if they engage on or if they act on their impulses, it's kind of like more forgiven. And also, I guess at the end of the day, kind of like the big consequences of sex, like if you think, if you go, like the big consequences, like a pregnancy or something, and you know, like, you know, at the end of the day, men can't get pregnant, you know, like cis, cis men, cisgender men can't get pregnant. And so I guess like the big pressure is not there that a man will kind of like have sex with as many people as possible without there ever being kind of like a risk of a major consequence as of, unless it's when we're talking about sexual transmitted infections or something. Um, yeah, so that could be it, that men just kind of like culturally, they get away with being more sexually adventurous than women do. Um, yeah, I would, I would say that like, and, and I mean, it, it, the, the thing about men getting away with a lot, it's not even just when 
for example, like, you know, someone is a, a late teenager and is kind of like engaging in all these sexual like, liaisons, very promiscuous, for example, nothing wrong with that. But it also goes like through the relation, the life of the relationship in, in Kenya, you know, this, that there's a big culture on kind of like, oh, you know, there's almost an expectation that a man will cheat that, oh, you know, like, uh, if, if a man has been in this marriage for this long, there's almost an expectation that he has had affairs, he probably has a child outside of wedlock. And for many people, it's kind of like, it's not tolerated, it's tolerated, but it's, it's, it's still looked down upon. But as opposed to like a woman having a second family, I mean, that would be seen as a big shock. And it's just the standards that we have, the different standards that we have between men and women yeah so I, i'm glad you bought a lot of things and we're going to go even as you talk about politics of sex the legal aspect of sex and you said men get a lot away with a lot which is true however legally men are also very legally bound when it comes to sex um i'm currently in rwanda and i was just studying some of the sexual laws in rwanda and their sexual harassment policies are more inclined towards the woman so much that there is a legal age for women to consent for sex and to be pregnant which is 21. However, there is no consensual age legally in their constitution that talks about men and sex. So ideally for them, they're focusing more on protecting the woman and sex, but the man is forgotten. Because ideally, a 12-year-old man can have sex, for example, with a 12-year-old, you know, whatever. Like, like when it comes to consent and age in their constitution, it's only focused on the woman. And even when you talk about law and sex, men are highly penalized when it comes to any sexual issue, sexual harassment, sexual assault, and all this. And even you took look at how we treat um, rape cases and all that. Some innocent people, and I'm not being a rape excuses, but some innocent people have fallen victim of being arrested or convicted because ideally, if it's a case between a man and a woman, of course the man is wrong. Ideally, there's this stereotype, the man is wrong. If a woman accused you of rape, you are wrong regardless of the evidence like you are the you're you're the perpetrator in that case and and more often than not you find very many people going to prison or being convicted yet they're actually innocent what do you think about how the law treats sex when it comes to men and women well i think that it, to what you've said like i i i will kind of like disagree on some of the things i think like your question is two parts the first part yes. is that there is kind of like a differential between the age of consent between like uh, male persons and female persons. And yeah. as someone who's kind of like also worked on LGBT rights issues as a lot, you'll sometimes find that the age to consent to sex, like between same sex conduct and like, you know, different sex conduct is usually like there's usually a discrepancy and it's a big issue in the LGBTIQ rights community. Like the, consent laws to be regularized around the same age so there's that and then there's kind of like the enforcement of rape laws the enforcement of like other laws that kind of like are meant to uh, address you know sexual harassment or other forms of sexual violence so i i think that like uh, countries should strive to regulate or the consent laws so if the consent law for men or young male adults is 18 it should be also 18 for women. I think that um, at the end of the day, it puts a lot of men in kind of like, or a lot of male persons like in a position of legal jeopardy where they kind of like 
like uh, they could get into trouble, like if they engage in consensual sexual relationships, for example, an 18 year old and a 20 year old in the case of Rwanda. So one person has already achieved the age of consent, but the other person, for example, hasn't. So yes, true. You could, yeah, you could put it at 21 for all of them. You could put it at 18 for all of them, but it should actually kind of like be regulated in a way that you're not putting people in a position of legal jeopardy. Um, yeah. When it comes to kind of like the enforcement of, of rape laws, and I have worked for like women's rights organizations and I've worked on women's rights issues, I will say that for the most part, um, rape is one of the most difficult crimes to prosecute. Um, I think in mm -hmm. Kenya, like for a successful prosecution of a rape, there's, you know, need for DNA evidence. Sometimes even witness corroboration, like does not like really ensure that like, you know, the the case is kind of like, that the case is successful or the prosecution, let me just use the correct word, that the prosecution is successful. Um, a lot of, uh, I will say this, that um, rape is one of the most underreported crimes like in, in the world, I think that, you know, when it comes to a lot of women see the struggle that victims of sexual violence go through in the legal system and just choose not to use legal avenues to pursue justice. Um, as with any, as with any, will say that there's always the risk that someone who did not commit the crime is convicted for it. But I would say that given the very, very high standard of prosecution that's applied to cases of sexual violence, especially rape, that actually rape has a lower, you have a lower likelihood of being wrongfully convicted of rape as compared to other crimes, especially property crimes like theft and so on and so forth. That's just yeah. not my content. That's not only my contention, but it is actually kind of like um, they've studied it. Also kind of like, you know, like rape is one of the cases, uh, one of the crimes where across the board, male victims, female victims are the least likely to actually like report, falsely report a rape. I, I think that because of the stigma that's accorded to it, before you actually yeah. take yourself through the process of reporting, like, you know, falsely reporting a rape, I think there are so many disincentivizing factors that people choose not to go ahead with it. But actually, like, this is a very important question also about, like, the politics of, uh, the politics of sex. Because at the end of the day, Papa, like, what you kind of, like, see is that there are a lot of, like, ideas or views or opinions or even myths that are accorded to, like, certain forms of, like, sexual acts including sexual violence so for example like there's this contention that like there are a lot of men convicted of rape for example or like there's this contention that like the law favors women i will say this as someone who's worked for women's rights organizations and has worked on women's rights issues in the past that women are some of the most legally jeopardized group in our legal system it is extremely difficult for victims of sexual violence to actually get the justice that they deserve but this is something that we can talk about especially asking like why is idea that you know women are benefiting somehow from the prosecution or from the enforcement of laws against sexual violence why is it such a big and prevalent idea in our society because i mean i can say this all day on the ground, qua ground, what we are seeing is that it's just not the case that like a lot of people are going, like a lot of these things that are being said about rape laws are actually true. Okay. That now was a you very mentioned. Long answer. I'm sorry. 
No, it's okay. It's okay. It's very fine. It's it's very detailed. And and I noticed yeah. something about men reporting um, violence. First, it dawns down to even our societal expectation. There's this stereotype that men always want sex. So if you're reporting sex that you didn't want, first of all, especially if you're con- of, of consent age, you're a 25-year-old man who was raped by a 22-year-old woman. First of all, how do you even report this? Because there's this stigma, one, as I said, that there's, there's the understanding that men always want sex, so you can't say no to sex. When the woman wants it, you automatically want it. So ideally, even the process of reporting, there's so much stigma within the justice process. You go to a police officer, you want to write a statement, um, this is what happened to me. The ridicule that you go through in the police station itself will even question if you want to continue going through, you know, pressing charges or taking this legally. Because again, our police officers have also not been sensitized enough in matters of um, men sexual violation, men sexual assault, men sexual harassment at work, and, and, and rape when it comes to men and all this. So how, how do we move forward with this? Well, I mean, you make a very good these kind of like myths and ideas that, you know, like men always want sex. Uh, men are always looking for sex. Men are visual creatures who are always on the prowl or men are the pursuers in a sexual relationship or in any sexual engagement that it's men who are initiating the sex. They are kind of like pursuing the sexual con- conquest and so on and so forth. And it is a myth. I mean, I would say that like in our society, like just at the place where we are, like, um, I think that, you know, like people are always kind of like looking to pursue a certain, you know, like everyone is like trying to get a nut. I, I, I don't know whether that's like great for the audience, but I feel like <laughs> these days, like everyone is pursuing the other person. Like people are kind of like now more kind of like sexually free with themselves and so on and so forth. Um, and I, so like, I think that the approach is that kind of like as a society try and break these myths and kind of like see people when they actually come and they say that I am a man and I was kind of like, you know, sexually assaulted or sexually violated or raped by a woman, that it is actually like a real possibility of happening. And they are taken through the same kind of like process that any other person who was subjected to sexual violence would be taken through. I will say this though, that women and girls, and this, is, this has been personal experience for me, uh, I've taken, you know, like adult women to report sexual violence to police stations. And um, it, is, it is pretty rough, like in the, in the Kenyan criminal justice system. Um, women and girls also face ridicule. They face, uh, the worst thing, as opposed to even leaving ridicule alone, it's just a skepticism that police always have towards any victim of sexual violence when they come to report the rape. Because at the end of the day, what you see is that society also has in mind certain ideas about what rape is. For example, like, you know, like the, the, the picture that many people have of rape is that, oh, a woman is walking, a woman who is walking at night, um, you know, kind of like, dressed in a skimpy way and then like she passes through a bush or a thicket and then someone pounces and attacks her and then rapes her and then like the rest is history so but usually like um and this was a big big shock when i actually started reading about feminism like maybe this is like 10 15 years ago and and it really shocked me because that's how strong rape myths are that the majority of like people who are sexually violated they actually know 
the violator at an intimate level. So it could be a parent, it could be a sibling, it could be a caregiver, it could be a teacher, a doctor, or like someone who's under their care or control. So a lot of the sexual violence that we have is actually like also pretty, um, it's by people that we know, it's by people that we've interacted, most of it is by people that we've interacted with before, that we've placed a level of trust even, and I think sometimes rape myths are there to kind of like um, enable us not to really see how at risk many of us are or how vulnerable we are to sexual violence. Because once you actually sit down and you're like the majority of sexual violence cases are like, you know, the victim and the perpetrator are known to each other, it becomes a very scary prospect that, you know, if that could happen to someone who, you know, if someone could be violated by their neighbor, I could also be violated by my neighbor. And that's a very scary prospect for many members of the society. Now, I want to take you back to what you said, that there's also a, a misconceived idea of what rape is. I think it also comes down to what consent is. There's a lot of misconceived ideas on what is consent and what is not. And that would also lead to, you know, when someone is reporting a case, even the, in the criminal system, the, the police officer will be like, did you go to his place? Yes. You went to his place at night for a sleepover? Yes. According to them, that is consent already. Like, if you didn't want sex, why did you go to his place for a sleepover? So society-wise, there's also a lot of misconceptions on what consent is and i want to take us back to some months ago there was a hot debate when when women were being killed and all this and a lot of comments were being made and there are these two gentlemen who made a comment about why are women meeting people in in private places if you don't want to fuck why go in the first place so ideally there's also this perception especially in the patriarchal system that you talked about where men think that they are entitled to get sex one just because I went to a club and I bought this girl some drinks and I went with that to my place, because I bought the drinks without even speaking, ideally, it should be in exchange for sex. So just because I bought you drinks, you should, you should, you should be comfortable me fucking you. And I can't take no for an answer. And there's so many other opportunities where um, we misconceive what consent is. Just because she accepted that you want to buy drinks for her doesn't mean she's going to sleep with you later. And there's also been, this, you know, we see it around Twitter and we see it all over the social media where there's this entitlement that men come with just because they do certain things for women, they expect sex in return. And that brings about the misconceived yeah. of consent, which is leading to a lot, of, excuse me, a lot of rape cases as well. What are your thoughts on all this? Patriarchy and, you know, you know, sexual assault and sexual violence and, and rape and, and how the two connect. Well, um, so you had a very interesting podcast episode, which was on enthusiastic consent. And I think that was like uh, a very good episode, a very good primer also on kind of like people to learn about um, enthusiastic consent. And enthusiastic consent is where it is clearly stated. It is informed. It is not mediated through drugs, coercion, or any other kind of inducement to kind of like engage in sexual activity. Enthusiastic consent can be like, you know, withdrawn at any moment in the sexual kind of like engagement. And I think it's very important for people to also know that like, you know, like it is possible for the people who are listening to this podcast, I want to tell you right now that it is actually possible to have sex with someone who has enthusiastically consented to it. I think that in this country, because of like what you are saying about sexual en en entitlement, especially by men, um, I think that's also like we have to sit down and go back to the roots of 
where these things come from, where these values and ideas come from that, oh, you know, like um, you're always entitled to sex. And I think part of it is because of just patriarchy that a lot of boys are growing up being. I remember when I was in high school, in boarding school, I, they used to say, oh, you know, you need to work very, very hard so that by the time you're graduating, you should kind of like um, earn a good living so that you can marry a beautiful woman, a young, beautiful woman that, who's very attractive. Um, and, and the only reason these young, beautiful women like want to, you know, like have sex with men is with men who have money, is men who have good careers or who have a nice car, a nice house and so on and so forth. And so you find that like for the people who have these kinds of things, um, you, you, you see that they are more entitled to sex or like if I buy someone a drink, even if I'm not rich myself or I take someone on a date, um, and then we are going back to my place. There's this idea that, you know, like that I should get sex afterwards. Sometimes, and I, I've been on, on numerous dates where like, you know, like I go out, I come back, you know, I come back with person. And, and what we do is we might watch TV. We might continue the date in the house. Um, you know, like I identify as a gay person. So like if I go out, I sometimes I'm not very comfortable in talking about, you know, like intimate things or talking about life as a gay person in Kenya. And so I'd prefer to have that at the comfort of my home, for example. And so there are so many things, there are so many cues and ideas behind why in the first place we are kind of like, you know, like the, we are coming back home with someone. The other thing about like, you know, sexual entitlement, yes, it is tied, and that's my point, that it is tied to like our views about patriarchy and the entitlement of men, that men are being raised to be told that once you get to a particular level, you are entitled to the affection, to the companionship, including the sexual companionship of a woman. And this should come naturally. And so you'll even find, and I think this is why podcasts like these are so important, that, you know, like, I mean, things like sexual intimacy, why are men kind of like not said to be very good in bed? It's because they think that on account of what I have materially, I should already be, that should be enough. That because I have a, a car or a house or I have a job or whatever, that that should compensate for other ways in which I'm not showing up for my partner. And that's just not true. Um, and I, I think that also a lot of like the hint, you know, like in Kenya, like it's only now that people are kind of like becoming more sexually explicit. But I think that we live in a country where seduction is through sexual cues. So like you're supposed to be picking up on certain cues. And this is not just Kenyan society as well. The idea of enthusiastic consent is like basically you're asking someone can we have sex? I, I would like to have sex with you. Can we please have sex? Under the context that we are both adults, we are not under the influence of drugs. I'm not coercing you to do it. So we're not having sex so that I can get, so that you can get something in, you know, like money or in exchange for like gifts or something. It is because we want to have sex with each other. We want to have that kind of sexual engagement. And in Kenya, like what you see is that like men are taught that, oh, you know, if a woman does this, it means that, you know, like she wants to have sex or if, uh, if like, you know, if you take her out and then like you're going back to your place, it means that, you know, like that there's sex on the table. And that's just not necessarily the case. 
I would say that actually this blocks a lot of sexual intimacy among the sexes, especially in heterosexual relationships, because like you find that a lot of women are on guard, uh, even when they're going out on dates. A lot of men have that pursuer role still, like they're like, you know, oh, like a guy, like, you know, when you finish the date and then you're like, okay, I want to go home. This was nice. They, 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 you'll find that sometimes men also get quite upset because they're like, oh, why are you going? I thought we would go to my place because I took you to Java or I took you to Art Cafe and we, we had chicken and chips or whatever. And that's just yeah. not the case. That shouldn't be the case. Okay. Now you talk about a lot of things, which is a lot of things to talk about. But I want to also highlight that it also comes... I'm so sorry. It's okay. It's okay. I have, I'm very noted. I've noted everything. So it comes, first of all, to the fear of no. Many people, especially in our Kenyan society, don't ask for enthusiastic content because one, you fear the possibility of getting no as an answer. And then you also talked about like reading cues. And because we lack sex education, there's a lot of stereotypes and wrong norms that come into play because people misinterpret cues. Men would, cis gender heterosexual men would go, for example, and say, just because she wore a dress, she wants sex. Why? Because you are not talking to our society about sex education. So they are teaching themselves with some of the lies and some of the ideologies that they've, that has been passed down from generation to generation. It even goes as much as when a man is pursuing a woman in a cisgender heterosexual relationship, you find if the woman says no, the man is like, ah, she's just playing her to get. Sometimes she's just not interested. But because you don't have sex education, we are, we are relying on misconceived ideas around sex and, and around the whole idea of sex. And that brings me to the question, therefore, what do you think about sex education in our Kenyan culture? Because lack of sex education means people are teaching themselves stuff like, oh, sex without a condom is good, without this, or you cannot have a baby if you use a matchbox. Some of these misconceived ideas and the solution to this is sex education. As a lawyer, why don't we have sex education in Kenya? Oh, can, can you tell me the, 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 the one, you said something about if you have sex with a box, what does that mean? Like, I've never heard of that before. Really? Welcome to yeah, Kenya. To... <laughs> There's this, and it trended sometimes on Twitter, sometime like a month ago or something, and the idea was that a woman, in a, and you're married, and you're having sex with people other than your husband, if you put a matchbox in your vagina... In case you get pregnant, the children will still look like your husband or like yourself. Sorry, the children will look like yourself as opposed to looking like the man you're cheating on with. I don't know if you get the point. Oh, wow. Any children like conceived out of wedlock from looking like, like the person the woman was cheating on. It's trended. It trend, it, it, and the, this is just one of very many misconceptions around sex. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, that's that's a very. You see, like also there are always all these cultural. You remember, like uh, when the AIDS crisis was really bad. Like they were like, oh, you know, if you're HIV positive and you sleep with a virgin, like or someone who hasn't had sex with, you know, the concept of virginity, I know, is fake news. But like, yeah, like <laughs> if you have sex with someone who hasn't had sex before, then like I don't know, like the HIV comes out of you and like goes to the other person. I don't know. Um, but yes, uh, <laughs> wow. Kenya. <laughs> Kenya, we have famously horrible uh, sexuality education. This is a well-known fact. Um, sometimes it's important to go back in the old days because I think they did have some form of like sex, sex education, especially when you're going through initiation from childhood to adulthood. You are sat down and you are told um, the ins and outs of like sex. But even that sex education was for that 
for that time it had like the good things and the bad things and mm-hmm. you know like the good things was like sometimes like people were kind of like taught how to kind of like you know um incorporate pleasure into sexual activity i think that's very important also yes yeah, yes like to transition a society to see sex not only as people having sex so that they can have children but also people having sex as a way of connecting with each other whether or not that's in a very defined relationship or not but what you kind of like see over the over time is that we start reverting back to the utility of sex um so there's there's a lot of like the sex has a particular purpose papa like it has and the purpose is to have children and if you're not having sex to have children then we don't know what you're doing and so to have sex in order to have children you have to do it when you're married and so that's why you kind of like see that sex education in this country is pretty like uh it's framed within a very religious lens first of all that you know, sex true. outside very marriage true. is very wrong true. yeah and then But you I, have like also, yeah mm-hmm. yeah let me just pause you there i think religion has affected a lot of things because there's reality and there's religion religion creates an ideal on what we perceive sex to be which is not actually the reality and i think it's up to us to now come down to the reality yes yeah, sex is between married people sex is between this and this there are teenagers having sex there are people who are not married who are having sex there are people who don't even want to be married in the first place there was a time in parliament where there was this conversation about giving uh, students in school condoms which was a huge conversation and when you talk about sex education it also brings this idea that we are pushing the gay agenda anytime somebody wants to bring sex education is like oh you want to bring sexuality and sexual fluidity and you want to talk about they them he her she transgender and all that and ideally that's not the concept the concept of sex and sex education in itself is to educate our children or educate people for that matter to understand the idea of sex to understand sexuality as is and to help break some of these traditional views and traditional misconceptions around sex and it's unfortunate that as a country we are not yet there where we can comfortably go to a form 3 class in high school and teach them about sex safe sex um contraceptives and all this it's true people are having children in high school we, why are we living in this ideal that sex is between married people and you're not going to talk about sex with our children i think it's really really important especially for teenagers to have these conversations it's just quite unfortunate that as a society we are not politically ready to have sex education and you know the interesting thing is if you actually had like a a, a standard comprehensive sexual education approach um you would actually see less likelihood of violence because a lot of like the the thing is there is actually sexuality education and sex education happening it's just that it's the wrong kind because yes. like, what people are learning yeah people uh, a lot of these rape myths it's because like there's no sex, comprehensive sexuality education not even a basic and standard one um it's very worrying in this country that one of the groups that are kind of like being infected by hiv the most are actually young teenagers not like the 17s and the 18s of this world but the 13s and the 14s and the 15 year olds so you yes. kind of like it's very worrying and it's because like even if you just had a basic policy of comprehensive sexuality education that does not incorporate things like rape myths that doesn't incorporate a shame culture for engaging in um 
premarital sex or even engaging in like sex, you know, like same sex activities, because it happens. Like, you know, all these people who grow up to be gay, like they might, they must have like had these feelings at some point. Um, mm-hmm. And so like, you, you kind of like find yourself in that place where you, you, you are like, if your priority is for people not to get pregnant from like, from, you know, kind of like engaging sex when they're in high school or even in primary school, then you should actually like, kind of like tell them why that's a good idea or why you can forestall this. Because also a lot of people are engaging in sexual activity because they just don't know what sex is. Like, and, um, and the, the, of, yeah. hearing all the stereotypes of how good it is and how amazing it is that when you have sex, your boobs are going to grow bigger. When you have sex, your penis will be longer. And it's because I've not been taught. So why not experiment and find out? Is it true that if I have yeah. sex, this will happen? And it's very, very true as you're saying it. Yeah, that's that's a hundred percent true. And so, like, you will see that, like, if you just had a basic policy on just a basic comprehensive sexuality education, where you tell people this is what sex is, you tell people what the laws are. A lot of these children actually think that, like, it is okay for like an adult to to predate on a child. So, like, for example, like every time like the form fours leave you know like uh this the government you know it's in the paper that today was the last day of kcsc and then you'll find that men are commenting oh it's time for me to go and look for this person who has finished form four i've always been seeing that person and this is my chance this is because also culturally there's there's a there's a permissiveness towards like adults pursuing and having sex with minors and so like if you actually go and tell the minors that it is absolutely wrong it is absolutely wrong for someone to do that that that's also like very comprehensive sexuality education the thing that like people always revert to is because when you start sex as something which has a purpose and the purpose is like to have children when you start thinking about sex as sex as a pleasurable activity what happens is that you now have to also consider who are engaging in sexual activity just for the fun of it and for the most part like that's a lot of us like you know in the queer community also a lot of heterosexual people are having sex for pleasure and you know like if you can have sex for pleasure you don't need to get married papa you don't need to get married and the government wants as many people as possible to get married and have children and all of that so that's also like another thing another thing that's usually on the background that we actually want to maintain a culture where people are having sex for a particular reason and the particular reason is for them to have children um we have to remove the aspect of pleasure from it we have to 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 kind of like remove the aspect of like you you know you can have sex across genders as long as it's consensual and adult so you see like there are a lot of people who have their own interests like within it and that's why like you'll see politicians who are usually quite religiously conservative come in and say that oh no it's absolutely wrong for us to teach 15 year olds or 13 year olds that if you're gonna have sex try and protect yourself in this way or if you actually get an sti this is how you're supposed to go about it because sexuality education is just not about like the whole process of sex or desire or whatever it's also mm-hmm. how do you protect your sexual and reproductive health so that idea of that you know like me and you have like a, a, this thing called active health system within us and it is actually a good thing for us to try and remain sexually and reproductively healthy is something that also people are very very much against in our society
True. Now, I would like to take you back to what you are discussing on sexual entitlement. And I'm going to be mm-hmm. counseled for this, but this is just my opinion unapologetically. So I think the concept of dowry is also elevating the idea of, of sexual entitlement within men so much okay. that it brings an idea of ownership. Like I own you, I can beat you when I want to, I can cheat on you when I want to, I can discipline you because I bought you. So, so it also comes down to how does dowry and all that affect sex? Because ideally the man would feel, I paid a lot of cows for you. I paid a lot of money for you. I should be able to get sex whenever I want, as I want to have. So regardless of whether the woman wants two children or not, or the woman wants to have sex or not, the man bought them, you know? And, and most men are having this idea after paying dowry that it brings a sense of entitlement, a sense of ownership, and it also affects their sexual relationship. You know what? It's so interesting. Uh, I totally agree that like the concept of dowry or bride price, because certain communities also refer to it as bride price. Oh, that's so bad. Like it just, the way it just, it sounds so The bride bad. Like, has a price. We are selling yeah, the woman. The um, well, start, most communities, like if I, if I were to play devil's advocate for a bit, they would say, well, you know, like the bride price sometimes or the diary is paid over the course of the marriage. And that's a way to kind of like ensure that the, that the man's family is always taking care of like the, of the girl and like this marriage contract is for a long time. So you'll find like among Kikuyus, um, which is the one that I'm most familiar with, and even Kambas, which I'm also quite familiar with, you'll find that those communities, like the bride price can be paid over long period of time and so it's kind of like i mean you can call it installments but it is also kind of like a vote of confidence that this marriage is still going that you don't have to pay all the bride price at once you can pay it over a period of time but then yes you're right that the concept of a bride price does actually contribute to a sense of entitlement it also contributes to a sense where like a woman is being objectified she's reduced to you know like when you're a person you're not an object universe you have so many thoughts so many feelings aspirations sensations dreams hopes and so on and so forth so no one can reduce you to an object and the object is to kind of just provide pleasure or like to be an extension of a man's needs but that's what like sometimes bride price and diary like communicate to a lot of women that i am an object i'm being exchanged for a number of livestock or a piece of land or this amount of money and so on and so forth and it does create that sense of like that sense of entitlement among men and i also think that it does contribute also to like a lot of like lower self-esteem issues especially from a cultural cultural perspective for example i mean what if like you know one woman is being kind of like you know the bride price is a hundred cows and one it's just 10 cows what does that communicate you know, like mm-hmm. in that community about like, you know, what quote unquote the value of that woman is. And so like culturally, you're totally right, Papa. Like there are all these things that are just stacked up, like, and they just communicate that because of all these reasons, men are absolutely entitled to sex and women are absolutely there only exclusively to sit pretty and be an extension of a man's kind of like sexual needs or a man's companion needs so but i will say that over time like a lot of things are changing a lot of people now even men like recognize that there's a relational aspect to being in a relationship with a woman so for example like uh, a lot of men now like and a lot of women have always been quite discerning and 
you know, they, they like to assess to be like, is this someone that I could marry? And finally, also now we are seeing like, oh, you know, is this someone that I, do I actually really want to be married to this person? Or do I want to be in a relationship with this person? Uh, it's not only like a question of, is this woman beautiful? Does she communicate that I am a, a big man because I have a beautiful wife that I can parade around and so on and so forth? So, I mean, the thing about culture is that it changes, but then whether it changes for the better or changes for the worse is up to us to determine. Now, we, we wouldn't talk about politics and sex without talking about how, especially now in the, in the current political system, sex is being used as a weapon to attack politicians. And this is where we are having this, you know, leaked sex tape between married politicians and, you know, these young campus women and nudes and blackmail and all that. So much that sex is now, and this comes to the economy of sex as well, sex is now a money-generating, you know, activity. Sex is payable. And let's start, let, before you go to the economy of sex, let's start with what is your perception of this? Um, we've had like a series of around, I don't know if you're aware, but around four that I know of, of politicians who have been attacked by sex. They're having sex outside marriage, these young girls, they take um, sex tapes of selfies in their naked and they release them either as blackmail or just to punish them or to bring down their political careers. Yes, um, I think I've kind of like come across a, a few. I'm, I'm so sorry that um, I, I've been going through it for the past kind of like six months, so I just, I'm not on social media. It just okay. started coming back. But then, like for me, it's always, um, you see like that kind of like also sex, sex scandal, like it's, a lot of people are also kind of like very interested in like seeing the inner sexual lives of people, especially prominent people like celebrities or politicians. Yeah. So sometimes like part of why this news causes a big, big scandal is just because it does, um, like people are so interested in kind of like knowing, oh, what is this and that politician saying? Sometimes when I've seen like, because in the past, a lot of women have been the subject of like leaked nudes and things. Yeah. I do think that as a country, we should actually have a law in place. I totally, totally agree with that. Um, when it comes to how women are treated and how men are treated when it comes to these sex scandals and all this, you know, that's a conversation for another day. Um, so, Kenny, um, we have exhausted a lot of these fundamental aspects of the politics of sex that you've talked about in this first episode. So I'd like us to stop here for the first episode. And thank you very much for those who have listened. Myself and Kenny are going to continue this conversation in the second part of the politics of sex. So feel free to click on the next link to understand some of the conversations around the politics of sex that we haven't yet covered. Till next time, bye.